in April of uh, 2015, I uh, <clears throat> began speaking here. I began preaching here, going back and forth as we were looking for a place to live and to transition from Northern California. My official Sabbath, first Sabbath, Nellie and I, was the first Sabbath in July of 2015. By week two of August, I was called to, uh, to come and make my first hospice visit. And by the second week of September, I officiated my first funeral here. We've said goodnight to 63 of our brothers and sisters since then. I've done almost 30 of those memorials or funerals, which is twice the number of all my 25 years of ministry before coming here. More often than I'd like to confess and that we would all like to confess, those of us who have been here that long, that this house here, more often than we'd like, has been a house of mourning. And for some, looking back at some of the people that we laid to rest and said goodnight to, I'm looking at their widows and widowers right now. So it's always a house of mourning. If you're here and you have to grieve, then it's a house of mourning. That's why we're here. And I think that hopefully we're doing um, Solomon justice, we're doing our Kohelet justice in that this is what he's pointing out to us in Ecclesiastes. This is a life that was lived in service uh, to the Lord, a life that was lived in service to his throne and to his country. Um, and we, yes, we know the, the, the problems and, 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 and the various uh, ways that he misused it and abused it. And here he is writing at the end of his life saying, this is what I've come to understand and this is what I've come to know. And we've seen in the first six chapters that death and mourning is centered to where he's at right now because it centers to all human existence. This is where we are. Doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter how many uh, times we've ever had to grieve. It doesn't matter if we're grieving now. It's the one thing that holds us all together. So I think that whether we consider this house a house of mourning, your house, we stay with our Kohelet today, the, our, our preacher, our teacher, Solomon, because he's asking us to consider the mourning that we do every day, and that should at least make an impression upon our living hearts. He's made some awfully cryptic, and I'm sorry, pardon the pun, but he's made some awfully cryptic conclusions up until now concerning whether or not life under the sun is better than death. If I were to ask you uh, what, is, what is Ecclesiastes telling us, Solomon's already said, that death is better than what? Death is better than life under the sun. This life, this life of futility, this grievous evil, he began last chapter, we began last week, he said there's an evil that is seen under the sun and it lies heavy on all humankind. 
And remember, he concluded as to those of us who may not be able to uh, be satisfied with what we have um, uh, and, and our, our, our life is constantly futile and constantly um, at, at, at odds. Uh, he says it's, he came to simple conclusion that it was better to be stillborn or miscarried than to have to live one moment under the sun. Because he said at least they find rest than the one who lives. They may be trapped, the one who lives is trapped and burdened by their greed and their oppression. And what good is a thousand years twice? He says, what good if you live 2,000 years in that condition? And he goes, by the way, you live a thousand years, you live only one minute, we all go where? We all go to the same place. So that, that seems to be the theme that he's going to continue in chapter seven. Chapter seven is actually the longest chapter of the book and there's a lot of real good things in there and I don't know if we'll come back to chapter seven after this week but I wanna, I wanna stay with the first four verses because of this theme and because of where we are as a church, where we live right now. And, and, and knowing our journey, at least for the past seven years, I wanna, I wanna stay with this theme. So... Hopefully Solomon can bring us home, home to this house, if you will. A good name is better than a precious ointment. The day of death is better than what? Is better than the day of birth. Okay, begins with a real snappy little proverb as Solomon is, is famous for. A, pre, a good name is better than a precious ointment. I like that. Reputation versus a precious ointment. Which one lasts longer? See, again, even, even a reputation is, is hinting towards it's better to be dead than having to toil under the sun because the ointment, it, the last thing that an ointment, a precious ointment can do for us is anoint our bodies as it did back then. That's the last thing it can do. And if it's, if it's very precious and, and we had it and we were selling it and we were making a living off of it, well, we can't make a living off of it anymore because we're what? We cannot take it with us. The only thing that goes, the only thing that stays is what? Is a good name, a reputation. <laughs> Does Solomon realize what his reputation is 4,000 years later now? And he concludes that the day we die is better than our birthday because of the toil and the futility under the sun. I hope that whenever I say that, you hear everything that he, he brings back that refrain to. Vanity of vanities, all is what? All is vanity. Thus too, wisdom is vanity. Everything great about humankind is vanity because of what we have done to it, what our natures have done to it, what sin has done to it. And then he piles on, and this is the verse that, that brought me to to this message today. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of everyone. See, the house of mourning is the one house that includes how many? Everyone. It includes, it, it includes those of past. It includes those left behind. It includes the reputations. It includes everybody. You and I, one day, may end up changing categories in the house of mourning, but it is where we all end up in the house of mourning. 
It's better to go there than the house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living get to, that's my words, gets to lay it upon their heart. The one privilege it is to be living in the house of mourning is that we get to learn, we get to uh, have an opportunity, if you will, to have our hearts softened and turned and moved by our grief and to share that with each other. Wisest man that ever lived just told us he'd rather go to a funeral than a wedding, a memorial rather than a celebration. So in this one particular verse, just to break it down, uh, just, to, just to look at it on its surface, um, it, it came to me, does everyone get to feast in this life? No, he said in chapters two, chapter five, and chapter six, not everyone gets to feast. There are some people who never get to feast. They never get to enjoy their own fruits. Remember the the greedy? They don't get to enjoy their own fruits because they're obsessed with making more. The poor, they don't get to enjoy their own fruits because they've been oppressed. There are people who don't get to what? Who don't get to feast. But the house of mourning includes who? Includes everyone. So for one reason, that's the the house of mourning, is that the house of mourning is all-inclusive. It isn't a restricted club. It isn't a restricted country club, if you will. It includes who? It includes everybody. But everybody eventually, because, everybody while eventually dying, we also leave behind those who need to grieve our death. It's the end of everyone. That fact is what the living get to lay to their heart. The simplest conclusion that Solomon's coming to, which I, which I think to take this the simplest way, is that the living get to lay it to heart. He, what he's saying is, is that we don't ponder our own mortalities at a wedding, do we? Nobody sits at a wedding wondering how many days we've got left. But I guarantee you that thought crosses your mind at a funeral, doesn't it? In the midst of our grief, in the midst of of, uh, learning, uh, taking the next step in mourning, we all have that thought cross our mind. We're here one day and what? And we're gone the next. So he said that's why a funeral is better. We have a more common experience with everyone in the house of mourning than we do in the house, house of feasting. It's the one thing, maybe a couple of others, that bind us together. Mornings, mourning sometimes might be all we have together. It might be the sum total of our experience or our relationships with other people. It certainly has, maybe not been the majority, but it certainly has dominated our fellowship, has it not? In seven years? It just might be who we are. He'll continue to say that sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance, the heart is made what? The heart is made glad. I think out of all these verses that Solomon makes his case that it's better to mourn than to celebrate, that it's better to die than to live under the sun at least, uh, of all the verses that makes it case, I think this one is my favorite because it's so true and it can be applied to just about everything in life that we have to offer that our grief brings us to. There's a ton packed in this verse. 
On this toiling place under the sun, the paradigm was changed by which we judge happiness and sadness, ease and, and uh, uh, ill at ease. We changed the paradigm. Before the fall, right, you got to, cha- you got to uh, figure out what was good by only what was good. After the fall, what happened? The paradigm changed. The darkness comes, becomes that by which the light is judged. The light has to come to do something to the darkness. We didn't exist before then. It, 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 had, to, it had to come in. We judge everything by the worst to the best. We judge ease and happiness and peace and contentment. All these things are tempered by judging uh, by the death, poverty, sadness, war, and discontent that comes from living under the sun. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. From that day forward, the paradigm standard for joy became death. The paradigm standard for light became darkness. Your heart can't be made glad, as this says, if it wasn't first what? Sad. I love this verse. Because it at once judges completely what we've chosen as a substitute for life, judges it and says, no way, no how. Uh, this, this, is, this is fine for, for now, but there's, there's coming a day when this paradigm will be switched back. Don't get used to it. This world is not your home. You can't be filled unless you were once empty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. You cannot be satisfied in appetite unless you were hungry. You can't be quenched unless you had been thirsty. You can't come, joy can't come in the morning unless the night had been bleak. You can't be made well without being sick. You cannot be saved unless you were first lost. You can't be atoned for without first being separated. You can't have righteous given to you if the emptiness is filled with your filthy rags of self-righteousness. We cannot be comforted unless we mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, after this, especially after this verse, I'm ready to surrender to this concession. I'm ready to bow down to Solomon and say, yes, because considering 63 times in seven years, we've had to have our living hearts broken right in this place, in this very place, I'm willing to concede what Solomon says, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is the what? The house of feasting. Do you guys, because I, I can throw a number out there like 63, and I haven't even touched the numbers that, uh, of family members that we've laid to rest that don't happen to be a member of this family. My family since July of 2021. 20, we've said bye to five. So if mourning is the touchstone of all human experience, 
all this experience under the sun, then maybe we ought to take in all we can. Maybe we need to learn or take the opportunity all we can and get better at grieving and helping with grief. Because right now, if I were to ask you to give the church a grade on how well we do grieving and helping others to grieve, what grade would you give us? You bet, we get a big F. And I'm part of that. I'm part of that. As I told you, I said goodbye to my uh, little brother in July of 2021. He didn't even make it to his 50th birthday. My dad, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and I have been able to grieve maybe that much. Because it's just who I am. And I think most of us are like that. We don't have the avenues. We don't have the opportunity. We don't have the language of grief. We live in a place that does not value grief. This culture, this idea, this Western way of thinking, we don't do it right because we don't do it at all. I don't want to make this disparaging on my employer so I won't say it by name. My employer gave me a whole week bereavement after losing my little brother last year and then my dad. They gave me a week. And the, week, the bereavement week is to allow you to go to an out-of-state funeral as if going to a funeral is it. And we've taught that that's it, right? How, how, how uh, soon is society uh, um, uh, willing to accept us not showing up? How soon are our employers willing to, to let us go? Anybody here work for a company that gives extended grief time? No. After the funeral, they expect us what? Back. And by the way, not just employers, but friends. And again, I'm not picking on us because we're all in this boat. But even friends have a hard time when someone else is grieving. There comes a point when you may not say it, but in there you get, when are they gonna move on? And the only reason is, is because of perspective. Remember we talked about perspective last week and the week before. Nobody has the relationships with the people that we said goodbye, but us. We're the only ones that can understand. So as I did last week in, in learning about grief, uh, this week as I did last week in trying to, to put a, I guess, a, a, a face on what Solomon was saying about wealth and poverty and um, obligation and giving and not giving and what we're to do, I, I went to an old friend uh, in, 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 uh, in, in Matthew, our rich young ruler. I wanna go to an old friend again, except he's a much, 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 much older friend to turn to the oldest story in all the Bible, the oldest narrative in the Bible. And I wanna talk a little bit today to our friend Job. Because if there's anybody who could kind of point out what's wrong with grief, whether we're the ones grieving or we're the ones assisting somebody in grieving, Job can, can point it out for us. Job is a step-by-step -step guide on how to grieve and how not to assist somebody in grieving, how not to comfort if you're trying to comfort. 
First of all, is there anybody here, if that it was a competition, do you want to go up against Job as to the uh, amount of loss? No, we don't, do we? We're going to lose that game every time. Seven sons, three daughters, his entire uh, wealth and his servants and everybody who works for him, everybody gone. His own health completely gone. Apparently also it looks like his marriage is on the rocks too, which inevitably happens to a lot of parents when they have to bury one child, let alone 10 He's lost it all. And we pick it up in, in Job 2 after you learn all this about him. It says, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that he had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, they met together to go and console and comfort him. Why? They're his friends. They're church members. They're all fellow believers. If one of our church members, when we found out that we did that, how many of us would make a journey? Hopefully we all would at one time, right? They saw him from a distance. They didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes, threw dust in the air on their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This happens. These three church members and brothers uh, in, 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 in belief leave. They go to comfort him. And I want to say that for seven days they did. I want you to note two things that they did. They actually threw dust in the air and had it land on their heads. That is the same way that Job is mourning also. They are mourning what? With him. They are empathizing. Sackcloth, ashes, dust on the head. They are empathizing. And then the next thing they did was sit down in his presence and do what? Nothing. So for seven days, they were comforting him. But buckle your seatbelts, because they're about to no longer comfort him the second they open their mouths. Job speaks first. And would, you, would it surprise you to hear that Job and the Kohelet agree exactly the same about life and death at this particular point in Job's life? Job says this, he says, let the day perish in which I was what? in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived, he, he said he doesn't want to be stillborn, he wants to go back to when mom and dad conceived him and said, not tonight, guys. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light to shine on it. Who's he sound like? It's exactly what Solomon told us, right? in chapter six, and what he's telling us now. And why? Why is it better that he not be born? Because all he's saying is, is that if I was dead, I would be, I would have what? I would have rest. The wicked cease from troubling. The weary are at at rest. The prisoners are at ease. They no longer hear the word of their taskmaster. Everybody gets the rest. 
wicked, righteous, unrighteous, weary. All you have to do to get the rest of death is be weary. And according to Solomon and Job, we spend five minutes on this planet, we should be weary of everything that goes under the sun. When we're born, how long does it take to take the longest nap of your life? You're not out but two hours. Scream, cry, spent, sleep. Even the wicked, everybody gets rest. He agrees with Solomon that life under the sun, this state of mourning, we'd be better off dead. He then comes to a conclusion at one point or another that everybody grieving will come to. It says, for my sighing comes like my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. My cries and complaints, he says, they're, they're useless. Sighing comes like bread. I just sigh, I can't even eat. My groanings are poured onto the ground like water. What good is water if it's poured onto the ground? My complaints are useless. They're not what? They're not heard. Is it true? Does he, uh, is, it, is it really that God has given up on him and is not listening? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? Who's he blaming? God. Is God not listening? Does God not care? Did God do this to him? Is he the one that fenced him in? No, he's wrong. But our problem is, is that we sit outside his grief in Sabbath school and in church, and we try to judge what's going on with him right now. And we can actually say, okay, yeah, uh, he's, he's, he's wrong here. He's doctrinally incorrect. He doesn't have a right view about his grief. He especially doesn't have a right view about God. So we sit and we judge. Is he being faithful to God right now? Because the whole, the whole book begins with after everything happens, he falls down and decides he's going to worship God. By the time he gets to this point, you can go, ah, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. If you can't, Okay, if you, if you can't seem to, to come to the fact that he may or may not be faithful, I want you to consider the first friend to speak because it says, Eliphaz the Timonite answered, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from what? Who can keep from speaking? And I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I, I, I would raise my hand first. Have you ever tried to comfort somebody after they've gone off on God and blamed him? Have you ever tried to comfort them to try to tell them that God's not responsible for this? Is that where you start? We have though, haven't we? Really what he's saying is, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. I, can't, I, I understand what you're going through. I've been sitting here for seven days listening to you. And, and right there, I'm done. I can't. I can't anymore. I can't keep my mouth shut. Who can keep their mouth shut? No offense now. And listen to what he says. He says, you've instructed many. Up until now, you've been, you've been a preacher, a teacher, you've been an elder, you've instructed many, you've strengthened the weak hands, your words have supported those who were stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. 
It's not your fear of God. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, the integrity of your ways, your hope? First thing he says, hey man, you're not practicing what you preach. My friend died, you came to console me, and you told me all of this hope, and you told me God was listening. Now that it's happened to you, you can't do it. Comforting? And then he says, is not your fear of God, your confidence, the integrity of your ways, your hope? Doesn't your faith buoy you now? As somebody who's grieving about any Christian that's come to him, and one of the first things that they will say is, have you prayed? Isn't your faith strong enough to get you through this? Where's your faith? Eliphaz says in his head, I know where it is. Listen to what he says. Think now, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? I know where your faith is. You can't be faithful in God because you know this is your fault. It's your sin that brought you here. It's obvious. Job's suffering because he what? Because he sinned. Chapter five, he'll, he'll strengthen his argument. It gets even uglier. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? God is ignoring you because you're a sinner. To which one of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple I've seen folks taking root, but suddenly I cursed their dwelling. Their children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there was no one to deliver them. Holy cow. Did he just tell Job that, first of all, he's a sinful fool? That's why God won't listen to him? And that he was the one that killed his children? He just can't what? He just can't help himself. And then he says just what I said before. As for me, I would what? I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. And you know why I can do that, Job? Because I'm not a sinner like you. But to me, this is every person that's ever, ever told anybody who's grieving, have you prayed hard enough? If you gave them a book on prayer or anything like that, what you're saying to that person in that moment is, you need a book on prayer because you haven't prayed hard enough. Oh, and it gets worse in our church. Nellie and I had a neighbor when we were living in Deer Park, had breast cancer, born and raised Adventist. Do you know how many recipes for healthful living she was given in her hospital bed after her double radical mastectomy? implying that if you really were a keeper of the health message, you wouldn't be here in the first place. But now you can start, because it'll save you. She couldn't count the number. So, let's summarize our church members' response to Job's grief. 
I have to say something about God because Job just isn't right. God cares. God's listening. Remember your faith. You have a hope. Pray harder like me. Seek God. When you speak to many who've decided to share their grief journey, it's surprising to find that most of the insensitivities come from fellow believers. But who can keep from speaking? First, they have to say something. We gotta say something. We can't let him blaspheme God right here, can we? We have truth, and truth tells us where our hope lies. We want to comfort, but we also need to explore that need to want. How many here would like to comfort people in grief? All I'm asking you is to explore that want. Get at the reasons why. And then ask yourself this, am I in it for the long haul? Because I will tell you, that grief for those that aren't grieving at the time is at the very least the most uncomfortable thing you will ever do in your life. Sit with somebody who's grieving even though you're not and the only thing that you have is your relationship with the grieving person sitting there. It is the most uncomfortable thing you've ever been through. Our need to comfort is driven by this discomfort. How we we, uh, operate is always driven by that discomfort. We remind them of their hope because we realize there's nothing we can do. And I'm here to tell you up front, as somebody who's grieved, as somebody who has, has helped people grieve or tried to help people grieve, as somebody who's tried to help help people grieve, I'm here to tell you there's nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do that is going to make them feel better. Make them feel better is the operative word. That's not what we're there for. Making them feel better is the attitude of Eliphaz. And we're not used to that, are we? We're not used to being helpless. Especially us. We have hope, we're supposed to have hope, we're supposed to bring comfort. And really we have to admit that the only reason we wanna say something is because we wanna get out of there as fast as we can. Because there's nothing I can do. So we say something, we try to, uh, I'll, I'll coin a new term. First thing we do is we try to hope away their grief. You're grieving right now, I know we have a future hope, so I'm gonna bombard you with our future hope of the resurrection. Because I'm uncomfortable with how much you are are grieving right now, and I don't know what to do, so I'm gonna tell you about the hope so that you would at least stop while I'm standing here. We try to hope away their grief. What do we also do? We try to truth away their grief. At moments of grief uh, uh, is, That, that grief, don't we understand that grief is what is needing to be expressed even if it strays away from the truth? Does God care? Of course he does. 
But however, the lens of grief, that perception is is like any other and maybe even more powerful. It needs to be expressed through that lens. For them right now, it feels like God is not listening. Let them tell him. I've tried to correct somebody like that to tell them that God was listening. They turned the tables on me real quick. They said, how do I know? Because here I was not grieving and I couldn't tell them how I knew God was listening in my life. I didn't have any signs. None of us do. It needs to be felt in the moment that they're feeling it. It needs to be expressed. They don't need to be corrected on their doctrine of God. You've listened to me about it long enough. Listen to Job. Here's what Job has to say about it after they all speak. Uh, the book of Job is, is, is nearly 50 chapters. And pretty much it's divided up into three or four chapter segments. Job speaks and then every friend speaks. And every time one of the friends speaks, Job has to refute him. So by the time you get to, get to the end of one conversation, six, of, uh, about f- no, six discourses have taken place. So it'll take up to three chapters. This is, this is in uh, chapter six. They're not too far in. This is in the first one. He's, he's actually uh, going against what Eliaphaz started. And he says, those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, you're, uh, and, and, and by the way, a lot of the things that we know are wrong about God, Job actually feels that way. He actually thinks that a lot of what they are telling him is the truth. But listen what he says about the truth. Those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. You're trying to tell me the truth about God and I'm here to tell you you're forsaking his reverence. My companions are treacherous like a torrent bed, like freshets that pass away, that run dark with ice, turbid with melting snow, and in the time of heat they what? They disappear when it's hot. They vanish from their place. You guys were with me for seven days. You comforted me for seven days. I say one thing about how I'm feeling and you can't keep your mouth shut. You're gone. They're not with him anymore. They're standing there. They're with him, but they're just harping at him. They're just preaching at him. They're just just lecturing him. And how does he feel about it? Just the opposite of comforting, he says, you're tearing down. Which, by the way, truth without mercy is always going to tear down somebody, whether they're grieving or not. Listen to me, he says, teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone wrong. He said, if you guys were really right and you really were comforting me and I was feeling better, I would shut up. But you're not even close. So I'm going to keep talking. Job perceives what they really want him to do is to just shut up so they can feel better. How forceful are honest words, he says. But your reproof, what does it what? What does it reprove? At this moment, right now, he acknowledges that they're sincere and they're honest. But where does the sincerity get them when they're wrong? It's not the truth that is wrong, but it's the wrong setting for it. It's the wrong context for it. 
Like I said, that's, that's, I've only really touched on it, even if we have true things to say. Some might actually be saying, well, well Pastor Greg, I, I have a true uh, meaning of God. I'm not like the friends, so I'm allowed then to do this because I'm going to tell them the truth. Job's friends aren't. They believe that Job's being punished for his sins. They believe that Job's sins killed his kids. They believe that the righteous don't suffer and only the wicked do. This is all they bring to the table. Self-righteousness can be another way to deal with the discomfort of someone grieving because we don't want to do anything about it. What do grievers want from us? Comfort. Let them. Let Job tell you. Job answered, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I know why you're here. I know you're honest and sincere, and for seven days I appreciate it. But now, you guys suck at this. Miserable comforters are you all. Have windy words no limit? Or what provokes you that you keep on talking? How many times have he told them, if you really want to comfort me, what? Shut up. He's told them five times now. And by the way, this is chapter 16. They're going to keep talking all the way through chapter 48. This was the one that really gets to me. I could do as you do. I could talk as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. In other words, I can do exactly what you're doing right now. You know what else I could do, he says? I could encourage you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips could assuage your pain. I could do that too. And he says, by the way, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. I've been talking, and you want me to shut up. I've been talking. You say that I'm wrong about God and wrong about me and everything that's going on. I've been talking, and guess what? My pain hasn't gone away. I don't feel any better. If I forbear, how much of it leaves me? If I speak, my pain is not dissuaged. Why can't I talk right now? What does it matter right now? I buried 10 kids. What does it matter right now? This point right here, the grieving look at us and say, why can't you let me be in pain? Why can't you let me mourn? Why can't we live in the house of mourning? You know, if anyone uh, ever said that to me, you know what I would do? Probably what we would all do. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll leave you alone then, I'll leave you alone. No, I don't want you to leave me alone. I need your presence. I just don't need your theology. Not right now. If you think grief is bad when somebody's trying to comfort somebody who doesn't want to be comforted, I'll tell you how 10 times worse it is when you're alone. I used to say, hey, guess what? I, I was a chaplain at a hospital. Um, I used to say this. Um, people at times of great grief and at times of great trauma, don't worry about what words you're going to say because they won't remember them anyway. You know what I found, though? 
The insensitive ones, those they remember. They'll remember insensitivity, and then they'll remember also your presence. They'll remember that you were there. They may not be able to recall your beautiful discourse on the resurrection of the dead. They may not be able to recall uh, uh, seeing God for the first time in the city, walking the, the pavement of gold. They may not recall any of that, but they will remember that you were there. As long as we didn't offend them at the same time. So we don't realize that grief is the very process we have in order to come to believe in the hope. We have to grieve in order to have the hope. We can't throw the hope at somebody who hasn't grieved to the point that they're empty enough to accept it. Grief is it. Grief is the process. If we want people to believe, we have to let them be empty. If we want them to be filled, we've got to let them be empty. If we want to ease their pain, we have to let them be in pain. It's all wrecked with Job. He has grief with God. He says, surely God, you've worn me out. You've devastated my entire household. It's all wrecked my life here on earth. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. But listen, Job finds joy when he works through that. Even now though, he says, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Even right now, Job knows there's an intercessor, an advocate in pleading, a friend. And there's more to this friend and advocate. In chapter 19, he'll say, oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Everything that I've said, everything that they've said I should stop saying about God. I wish it was written down. I wish it was permanent. I wish somebody heard it. I wish it was written with an iron pen with lead and they were engraved on a rock forever. Why? Because I know that my Redeemer lives. And that at the last, he'll stand up on the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see on my side, my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart is faint within me. See, it's remarkable, it's absolutely remarkable from chapter three to chapter 19. The resurrection actually comes very late in Hebrew teaching. As I pointed out, this is probably the oldest narrative in the Bible. Moses did write it. It's probably written about the same time as the rest of the Torah, but the story goes probably all the way back to just the days after the flood. It's the oldest narrative in all the Bible. And without the witness of Noah and without the witness of Abraham and without the witness of Moses himself, Job has figured this out. He knows his God, he knows he has a friend. He's ignorant about some things and he knows he's ignorant about them. But my goodness, from that pain and that suffering until death, it is the only hope that Job leans on. He finds it in spite of his friends. 
And the only way that he got it was somehow he forced his way through an avenue to grieve. He had to blow through his friends who are trying to keep him from grieving and he blows through them and what does he find? He finds his redeemer. He finds the hope they say that they were there to give him. Just to compare, look back in chapter nine. He says, there's no umpire between us. He's talking to God. He says, there's no one who understands us. I wish there was somebody who could lay a hand on us both, he said. I I can't understand God, I'm human. But God can understand men. He's not human. I wish there was an umpire. I wish there was an arbitrator, he said, who could lay a hand on us both. And what does he say? There isn't one, right? There isn't one. By chapter, after, after grieving and after arguing with his friends and grieving and blowing through those obstacles in chapter 16, he says, even now, behold my witness in heaven, my advocate is on high. Now he, he begins to, to say, hey, wait a minute, he's there. I have an advocate. That arbitrator that I was asking for, he's in heaven though. He believed there wasn't, now he believes there is, but he believes that he's in heaven. He he believes there's still a distance between them. But then he says, now I know my redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, in my flesh I will see God. By chapter 19, that advocate that's in heaven now will be with him in the same place. What happened between chapter 9 and 19 that led him to be sure of this? Nothing. His suffering got worse. How in the world did someone suffering this much go from knowing there's no advocate to believing there was one? I have only one answer. His grief brought him here. How many here would like to, one thing, get across to anybody who's grieving, that not only is God listening, he's with you, he's walking with you. How would would you like them to know that? Then you're gonna have to let them grieve. Facilitate it. Don't try to faith it away, don't try to hope it away, don't try to truth it away, don't try to pray it away. Let them have their way. Isn't that what Paul was saying? Our hope, in our hope, we're saved. We hope, that, but hope that is uh, now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? I'm trying to make a hope become a reality and be seen in somebody's life when we should be telling them that, that, that you have to live in faith. It's not here yet. If we could see it, we don't have what? We don't have hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, then we can wait. And where do we wait? In the house of mourning. Where every living heart gets to live. By the way, God never wastes a hurt. If you've gone through grief, Maybe one of the reasons that we've gone through grief is that if we are allowed to grieve and we work through it and we get on the other side, guess what we're now qualified to do? We can help somebody else. And maybe, just maybe, those are the only people that should be allowed to work with people who are grieving. 
is ones who will understand, ones who will know. How much greater could our pain be redeemed than if later in life we can help somebody else? We should start all of our ministries that way, by the way. There's no more affected healer than a wounded healer. So if we grasp and we practice, then we certainly can resonate. So Solomon's got me on board, how about you? It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because it's the end of everyone and the living get to lay it on their heart. And we get to decide what we do to that. Will we help? Will we comfort? The house of mourning is just what the church can be and should be and probably is. The one thing that will get us through a trial is knowing there's a witness in heaven pleading with God as one pleads for a friend or a neighbor, even when there's no earthly evidence for such a belief. So I'm telling you, if, if, if you're having a hard time believing in hope and, and, and if you're grieving, you have to ask yourself, have I grieved? Because grief is the process that will get us to the point to where we can accept and hope again. And if we're wanting to help, <laughs> I don't, I, 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 what, I, what I would suggest is we, we need to be trained, don't we? And if we don't think that we can do it, if we try it, if it is so uncomfortable, you know what, that's okay. Maybe that type of, of comfort is not for you, it's not for us. You know what you could do? Do something else. I'll just give you one more hint. I know, uh, give me a couple more minutes. I'll just give you one more hint. The, the next biggest thing that people tell me that, that they wish that people would quit saying when, when after they say they're sorry for their loss. By the way, sorry for their loss, everyone I've ever spoke to said that's enough right there. They don't need any more. Stop, right there. But the next thing that they wish they would quit saying is, what can I do for you? See, at this moment in time in grief, I'm expecting Job to stop and tell me what to do. You know what they inevitably will tell you? Don't ask me what to do, just do something. Just do it. If you don't think that, that you can listen to somebody go off on God, and again, it's not for everybody's ears. I'm not saying that it's so much for mine. You know who are the worst, the absolute worst people at giving comfort and grief? Pastors. We're the worst. Because we're preachers. We talk for a living. We always think that we gotta talk. I'm going to visit somebody who's grieving. I am rehearsing in my mind what I'm going to say. Even though I stand up here and I know, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, I still rehearse what I'm gonna say. I'm a preacher, I'm lousy at this. You know who's great at it? Chaplains, because chaplains understand that chaplaincy is the ministry of presence, not the ministry of words. A chaplain knows how to be there for you and facilitate. And we all could be one or the other. The first uh, conference uh, leadership that gave me a call, I, didn't, I wasn't there when it happened. It had happened like two years before, but the conference secretary had lost his son. He was a senior in academy and he had died in, a, in an accident. A boy that had everything in his whole life in front of him. He was their only son. He was their life. 
And um, in the process of being conference secretary, he had to go through all of this because he's visiting churches and every, every church knows what's happened to him. And, and he's had people that he doesn't even know try to comfort him at, at any given time and everything. But he said what he remembers the most is this, is that he and his wife were, uh, had gone away on a weekend and they came back. And when they came back, they put their key in the door and they could hear a vacuum cleaner running. And when they opened the door, Comfort's president and his wife were in their house cleaning it. And Elder Snyder turned to Elder Cavanis and he said, I just didn't know what else to do. The house of mourning is our opportunity, like no other place, to be Jesus. We just have to learn how. The words of the Kohelet. Thank you for hanging in there with me a little extra time. Mm-hmm.